You're listening to The Gateway Church. For more information, please go online to thegatewaychurch.com. So when Jess and I uh, came to Des Moines, we, uh, this was about four months ago, we started just asking around as people who are in a new place with new features and new things all over the place. Uh, So what do people do here? And now we we came right at like the the end of fall, beginning of winter, and most of the time we were met with like blank stares, and then they would be like, oh, oh, um, okay, well, I guess you could still go to Gray's Lake. There's a little bit of a window before like it freezes. Um, if you, do you like to ride bikes? We're like, uh, well, no. Um, well, okay, well, well, there's still bike trails that are here. You can walk them. I said, okay. But, but by like, oh my gosh, like by and large, the most response that we heard, but what do we do here? We, we got started to get lists of different places to eat. <laughs> and, and it wasn't just eateries. Then we were like, oh, and you gotta go to the market. And even though we came in October, two months after the fair, we heard about the fair constantly. And so we're like, okay, okay. And, and you know, it's, what was interesting to me as I was reflecting on that is that what I'm learning is that our, our city loves to be known as a place for good food. And, you know, it's, it's inside and it's outside the home that food tells a story. Whether we know it or not, that's what food is doing. And, you know, it's, it's, this idea is starting to pick up steam in the hard and in the soft sciences. If any of you are on a, like, uh, a diet right now, if you're eating like keto or like, I don't know, whatever the new sexy diet is, n- nutritionists are trying to figure out the human story through these different little uh, compounds and foods and like what's going to be beneficial. And so uh, we'll be eating dinner and Jessica will ask Siri, uh, what vitamins are in strawberries, you know, like stuff like that. Like, so nutritionists are trying to tell the story of, of, the, of humans through food, but then food archaeologists are also looking at these uh, grave sites that they're unearthing, and they're looking at the collection of different bones and feasts, and they're all trying to make sense of what, what is it that humanity's been doing? And why is it that food is such a central feature to this story? And you may not know it, but this morning, we just all entered into a story that's centered around food. And at first, the text that Karen just read to us and over us and for us it might just stand out to you as another religious text, kind of this mysterious story about Jesus calling someone and then talking about clothes and wine. It's a little weird. But this text is all about food. And yeah, the story does unfold in this way where Jesus calls someone and then he does talk about cloth and, and wine. He, this is a little bit of an odd story. And yet... This is a beautiful story because what we'll see and what we'll focus on today is that there is this miraculous in the mundane. And so to get us ready to receive God's word, that's literally like to take God's word, like the best nourishment for us into our deepest parts. I'm just gonna ask a series of questions and you don't have to say your answer aloud, uh, but what did you eat last night? Why did you eat it? Where'd you eat it at? Table? You know, on the couch, TV on? Did you eat it at a counter? To ask all these questions because this morning, Mark is here to remind us of the significance of the table in our apprenticeship to Jesus. And more specifically, how our table is a space for us and for our neighbors to experience the miraculous amidst the mundane. And so just as we make our way to our teaching text, this is, this is how the morning is going to go. I'm going to pray, uh, and then I'm just going to frame out this, this, the context of what's going on here in this passage. And from there, we're just going to work our way through the passage, kind of line by line, and finish uh, with some more pastoral thoughts about what, what's happening when we eat a meal. 
So go ahead, if you will, I'm just gonna pray. Father, once again, we just, we just continue, to, uh, we continue to come to you because you are the fount from whom all blessing flows. And so, Lord, I would just ask that you would fill me with the knowledge of your will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, Lord, so that as we uh, receive your word this morning, as we come and we enter into the world uh, of the gospel according to Mark, that you would do this work that is bringing our hearts that are hard into a place of being softened to receive the grace that you have on offer. So God, we just pray that you and you alone would move through the power of your spirit and the preaching of your word, we pray. Amen. Amen. So our, our text opens uh, Mark chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 13. If you're analog, you can flip there. If you're not, to go ahead and tap your way on over. Get, get there uh, to Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13. And our, our teaching text opens this morning uh, out by the Sea of Galilee. And this is, uh, this is what we read. He, this is Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And so here's the scene. There's going to be a little map behind me. Uh, Jesus is up in the Galilee. So this is the northern part of Israel. He's on kind of like that northwest side of the sea. And this is his home base. He's holding it down in Capernaum. And you won't see it here on this map. You'll see it on another map here in a moment. You didn't know you were getting a geography lesson this morning, did you? It's fantastic. So uh, Jesus is in Capernaum. And Capernaum is a city on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is doing what Jesus does. He's going around. He's proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. And then when he sees Levi, the tax collector, he calls him to follow him. And, and none of us learned anything new. We just heard this read now twice. But Mark is doing something here. Mark is, is triggering for us the previous calling story. He's in the same spot. He's around the sea. And yet this time, he's not calling Simon and Andrew and James and John, these passed over fishermen. He's calling the enemy. And to see what I mean when I say enemy, uh, a quick word on who Jesus is calling here to be his apprentice. And so uh, to get a sense of this person, Levi, uh, Mark tells us two things. He tells us that he's sitting in a tax booth and he situates him around the Sea of Galilee. And that, once again, that might not sound like a lot of very helpful information, but this is huge because the geography and the circumstances tell the story. So he's in Capernaum, which is on the Sea of Galilee, and he's at a tax booth. It's, think of a, a major import and export depot. And this is, this is the scene that's, that's going out, is, is that in this space of Capernaum, it's going to be this border town. And it's going to be during this, this time when Levi most likely worked for this guy, Herod Antipas. Now, Herod Antipas is the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was, is the guy uh, from the Christmas stories. And when Herod the Great dies in 4 BC, he's going to split up his kingdom into three different parts. And you can see uh, from the map behind me what these, these different parts are going to be. So you have uh, in, the, in the south, you're going to have uh, Jerusalem, and Archelaus is ruling there. You have Philip, who ruled Batnea in the east all the way out to modern-day Syria. And then you're going to have Antipas, Herod Antipas, who's ruling in Galilee at this time. And what's interesting about Capernaum, and you can see it there, situated on the Sea of Galilee there in the northwest corner, is that it's right on the border between Batnea and the Galilee. And so to cross from one, 
to cross through Capernaum would be to pass this border, which means there was a toll, thus Levi's there. And this is still a practice today. I mean, we experience it. So if Jess and I are to go back to Michigan, which is where we hail from, if we were to go back to Michigan, the state of Illinois exacts a tax, a toll, and anybody who decides to travel on a tollway, it easier passage south of Chicagoland. This is still happening today. And in the same way, to pass from one part of the kingdom to another part of the kingdom, there would be a toll. But then on top of that, tax collectors would, would add a little something extra on that import and export tax. This is where Jesus meets Levi. This is the scene. And so you have these tax collectors. It's Levi himself and maybe like some of his other people and his crew, and there's stacks of money around them on the table. And then there would likely be Roman centurions that are situated there to help keep guard. And this is a normal scene for Capernaum, but nevertheless, a rather intimidating scene. And this is where Jesus rolls up. He's got the crowds with him. And now we don't get a sense of, of what's happening with Mark because Mark is, is rather economic in his details. But this, there's, some, there's like tension here that's building in this. And I don't, I don't know if we really uh, are able to tap well into the tension here, but so searching for an example, this is what came to mind. It's kind of silly, go with me. So if you live or you work in downtown Des Moines or you've been down there for, like, to eat some food at some time because, once again, that's the thing that everybody does, uh, you may have seen the parking attendants rolling around in their Priuses. You may have even received a citation from one of these people. This just begins, like whatever welled up in your heart, it was nervous laughter, I think that was. Uh, that just begins to scratch the surface of the animus that is felt towards tax collectors in Jesus' days. Because tax collectors, like I said, they would charge an exist, like, a, like a rate above and beyond the existing rates. No regulation, no reason. They could just do whatever they want. So it would be like that parking attendant seeing a luxury sedan parked and their, their uh, parking has expired. And they go up, you know, I, th I think they can roll a buck fifty. Yeah, 150 bucks. This is, that seems, does this seem good to you? Yeah, that seems good. Okay. So they would do that. But then they see like a, a 94 Saturn down the road that theirs expires and they're like, ah, I think they're good for 15, maybe 10. Let's just do 10. So this is, the, there's, there's no art, no science. It's just on their own idea of what they're going to charge. And it's almost too light to say that tax collectors were hated because they're really doing what they, own, what they want. And they're also standing in for the people of Rome who are the military occupying force. So it's like there's double duty going on there. And so I, I know that this seems light. And so I heard this connection, it jumped out to me. Tax collectors like Levi, what we could liken to a Jew who was working for the SS and the Nazis in World War II, routing out other Jews and handing them over. That's how intense the betrayal would have run. And then to this Levi, this traitor to the people of Israel, this well-known rabbi who's known for healing and preaching and with authority and casting out demons, he comes up and he looks at Levi and he calls him to follow him. He calls him to be his apprentice, to come and be with him, to become like him, to do what he did. And this is madness. This is a scandalous scene that's unfolding. And, and we get a little bit more of this tension. So go with me to verse 15. This is what we read. And I pick up right here. And as he reclined at table in his house, so just stop ever so quickly. Um, Jesus has now imposed his hospitality on Levi. 
As he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So it's not just one. It's like the whole crew sees the kindness that's extended to Levi, and they come, and they're like flocking to Jesus. Because meals are so much more than food. They're more than just a quick moment where we get some nutrition or maybe you're saying, oh, I just need some fuel or some macros or however you want to describe it. But meals, especially for Jesus, are these symbolic and these subversive acts that play out the kingdom of God. It's, it shows what the kingdom of God is actually like. And what Jesus is doing here is nothing original, which is one of the things I love most about Jesus is he's picking up on this prophetic witness, this prophetic imagination that's been brooding in the Hebrew Bible for centuries now. And so he actually turns and he goes to this famous prophet of the day named Isaiah. And this is what Jesus picks up on in Isaiah 25. He says this, on this mountain, and now Isaiah is talking about renewal, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. It's a party. Like, they're about to get after it. See, Jesus' vision of the kingdom of God, it's like a feast. And it's a feast that everyone is invited to. We actually get a picture of this in the gospel according to Matthew. And we see this in Matthew 8. We, we read this. We say, this is Jesus speaking. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This in of itself is a scandalous claim because the table, the wedding feast, the, the renewal that God is like with the aged wine, well-refined, that's for the people of Israel. But Jesus just let everybody know that the table is getting bigger, that the invitation list is expanding. And at the end of the gospel according to Matthew, we actually see that it gets, it gets better. We see that the kingdom of heaven, this is Matthew 22, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. You see, meals in the economy of heaven are about much more than food. For, for Jesus to recline at a table, which is just the customary way they would eat, for Jesus to eat at a table with tax collectors and with sinners is to enact, that is to like physically display through action what the kingdom of God is really like. And we've seen some of these things on display before. We've seen that Jesus has healed. We've seen that Jesus has cast out demons. We've seen that Jesus has spoken with authority, that he's pronounced forgiveness. We see that wherever Jesus goes, the kingdom of God seems to be breaking out, breaking down boundaries, like inviting people in. Unclean people touch Jesus. He's not made unclean, but they are made well. And that's great and well. There's not really a lot of tension around Jesus healing people but you know what's greater than all these things? Sharing a meal with the God of the cosmos who's come near in Jesus of Nazareth. This is the core of our teaching today, that Jesus's presence transforms the mundane into miraculous. And because this is the core, I think we can so easily miss this. I think that we're okay with the God of the miraculous. We may be nervous about the God of the miraculous. We may be like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray for healing, 
but I don't know what to do if it actually happens. But we're okay if it does. We'll like glory, glory to God in the highest in those moments. And then we'll just stop there. So God, you just take care of the miraculous, but I'll take care of all the mundane stuff. I mean, this past week, we literally cried aloud for God to come and meet us, for Jesus, our healer, who's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, to come and meet with us, to bind up our brokenness. And some of us tasted the goodness of God in those moments as we like kneeled in confession and as we rose in assurance of pardon that we know that it is in Jesus in whom we're forgiven, in Jesus whom we're reconciled to God but I just want to make sure that we don't isolate Jesus's presence to some, like to those quote unquote exciting moments. Because as we kneeled, as we kneeled in confession, as we stood with assurance, as we received the bread and the cup, as we sang aloud, like we weren't trying to just like hit the right tonal pitch. We weren't trying to hit the right frequency that somehow rang true in the heavens and then the power of God came out and was unleashed. No, our our crying out to God was simply saying that if Jesus is Lord at all, then Jesus is Lord of all. And so we're saying, Jesus, if this is true of you, let it be so. And and yet even when those words were on our lips this past week, we might be tempted to, to think that Jesus is only interested in like the highly emotive moments. He's not interested like when we're groggy because we've like sprung forward. He's not interested in us if we're not a quote unquote spiritual elite. He's not interested if we're not like a paid Christian. He's not interested if we don't have all of our stuff together. When in fact, Jesus is quite the opposite. Look again at verse 15. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And then check this, because many, for many, how many? Many followed him. Meals in the ancient Near East were like boundary markers. They told the story of who was in and who was out. And I like how this New Testament scholar, his name's Scott Barchi, he says it this way. He says, being welcomed at a table had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom one shared the table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the doors to reconciliation. So according to the Pharisees, this was the problem with Jesus. This was the problem with his view of the kingdom of God. This was the problem with Jesus. He was opening the door of reconciliation to all the wrong people. Not just in the miraculous moments, but in the mundane ones as well. Just look down to verse 16. We actually get to hear from these scribes of the Pharisees. We read this, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, well, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And I think to get at their question, to to get at what's going on there, we need to see that for the Pharisees, this religious elite of the day, that the sinner was to be avoided at all costs. Because this term sinner, it wasn't just a religious cliche. Sinner, those were the people who, yes, lived with hearts calloused towards God, but the sinner was also the unclean. And and unclean, to be unclean is not a sin issue. For for example, if you've just buried someone, 
and you've had to touch this mark of death, then you are ritually unclean. You are impure in that moment. And so what you do is you go and you wash and you get cleansed and then you come back into the presence of God. But according to the Pharisee, that moment of uncleanness is tantamount. It's the same as being a sinner. You're actually not permitted to be in God's presence. And so the Pharisees, they would avoid the sinner's at all costs. They would avoid the unclean, the sick, the handicapped, really anybody who relaxed the law, which for us is the first five books of our our Old Testament. See, for the Pharisees, if you were Jewish, this is the paradigm. You're either righteous or you're a sinner. And what came as a sobering thing for me this past week was that the Pharisees in this account, they're really like the Bible-believing evangelical conservatives of today. And the Pharisees, they get a bad rap a lot of the time, maybe because of their opposition with Jesus. But the Pharisees had this robust, even beautiful vision for holiness amongst the people of Israel, but it went haywire. See, they were so emboldened by a vision for holiness, they actually thought every Hebrew person, um, well, every Hebrew male, so every Hebrew male was to be a priest, which meant that every home was to be like a temple, And at the center of the temple, the holies of holies was your table. That is where you offered up worship to God. And it's a beautiful vision, but it was uh, was kind of fueled by the superstition that somehow if their religiosity compelled the people of Israel to like pursue this Levitical code of the priests, which by the way, is the most rigorous part of the law, then somehow they could usher in the Messianic age that if they all abided by this strict religious code, then their holiness as a people, God couldn't help but return. And yet it's this way of of viewing God that emphasizes technique over trust. It's one that emphasizes like, okay, if we just hit the right pitch, if we cry out loud enough, then he will come. It emphasizes technique over trust. And so when Jesus reclines at a table with sinners, he is an affront to their vision. This is where things went sideways. Because if you fell outside that vision, remember, you're a sinner. And if you're a sinner, then you're a hindrance to God's renewal in the world. Therefore, a sinner's table was an affront to God's holiness. They stood in the way of the renewal of God in the world. And now Jesus, this well-known preacher who's preaching with authority, who has throngs and throngs of people following after him, he's now reclining at table with the people you say, that the Pharisees say are getting in the way of God coming. Ironic, isn't it? And if you can't sense it already, the Pharisees' vision here of holiness, it, it becomes a perversion of God's generosity and grace. Because the table, a place that's meant to, be, meant to be a place to draw people into God's goodness, to give of what you have, has become a place of exclusion. Meanwhile, Jesus, in his presence amongst sinners, tells a different story. It's just because food tells a story. And when Jesus' presence is there, it transforms the mundane into miraculous. The story that Jesus is telling is one of true holiness that doesn't exclude sinners, but rather it draws them in, it draws us in, and then it, like it dines with them. The reality is that we were once estranged in our sin. 
And sin, yes, is a churchy word, but sin, all I mean by that is any failure to reflect the image of God in our nature, in our attitude, in our action. Sin is utterly pervasive. And I don't think I have to try and like convince any of us that there's evil in the world. Sin is utterly pervasive. Sinners are Jesus's people. We're his people. He has a vision for us to be made new. Not, not, to, to like, like, not to like cast us out and then start over. No, to bring renewal to us, to the world through us. See, Jesus displays the grace of the kingdom at his table when the Pharisees exclude sinners at theirs. And just so that we would notice how intense this contrast is, uh, Mark, he, he draws it out a little bit further. Go with me to verse 18 and we read this. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and said to him, well, why did John's disciples and the Pharisees of, or the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? See, the Pharisees, uh, they would fast every Monday and every Thursday, 104 times a year. The Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, only requires that you fast one time a year on Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. It's the day the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, offer up sacrifice and covering of sin for himself and the people of Israel. That is the day that you fast. And yet so rigorous is the religiosity of the Pharisees that they say, no, 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 104 times a year. Step your game up, bro. Like that's what the Pharisees are saying. And so no wonder that there's this tension because Jesus is seen eating and drinking so much he's called a glutton and a drunkard. No wonder Jesus gets this rap. Like he's parting with tax collectors and sinners. There was one person I read this week, he says, like all throughout the gospels, it's like Jesus is at a meal or Jesus is coming from a meal or Jesus is going to a meal. Another little uh, quip I heard, if you, can't, if you read the New Testament and you're not hungry, something's wrong. And yet the question is, why isn't Jesus fasting? What's, what's going on here? Well, just look at, at Jesus' response to why he and his disciples are fasting, are feasting while the others fast. Verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. You see, all throughout the scriptures, as we heard at the very beginning of our time, uh, God's kingdom is likened to a wedding feast. And the Jewish wedding feast would be seven days, epic party, like the best of drink, the best of food. And Jesus is saying that what you've all been waiting for is right here. And I am opening up my arms wide to receive any and all who would come to me to feast at this table. I'm here where I go celebration is at hand. The days, sure, the days are coming when fasting will be needed because Jesus, uh, spoiler alert, Jesus is actually going to depart. And the gospel according to John, Jesus is gonna say that it's, it's better for me to leave. Jesus is the God of the cosmos come to us in flesh. Jesus is saying, I, I can only be at one place at one time, but I I'm gonna go away, I'm gonna be with the Father and I'm gonna send a helper, I'm gonna send an advocate, I'm gonna send the spirit of Christ to be with you. It's better for me. He's saying that the time will come when fasting picks up, 
But right now, feasting is at hand. The kingdom of God is breaking out through me. See, a couple years ago, I had the great privilege of officiating the the wedding of my brother-in-law and my now sister-in-law. And it was actually around this time. It's going to be their two-year wedding anniversary coming up here soon. And uh, during that time, it was in this Lenten season, and I was abstaining from a few things, one of which was alcohol. And here I had just got like done uh, preaching about the, the, like what God has joined together. Let no one separate. It's this beautiful moment of celebration. And it's like, I, I think weddings are the coolest thing. Like the, the picture of Christ in the church, like, come, oh my, just mm, beautiful. So there in this moment, there was like a toast and the toast is happening. And I go, no, I'm, 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 uh, I'm fasting right now. I regret that moment. I was thinking about it a lot this week. I'm like, well, why? Why was I? Like, I genuinely don't know why I was in that moment. It was a moment worth celebrating. Should I, I, I don't know. I can't go back. I can't, we can't change the things of the past. Nostalgia is something that like diminishes our present and God being here with us. So, so I'm, I'm saying, okay, I, I can't do that. I'm going to grieve this moment of saying, oh, that's a bummer. And now what does it look like to celebrate that God is here? I think that's what Jesus is up to. He's saying that there are moments where celebration is the appropriate response. And when Jesus shows up, celebration is the appropriate response. And so when Jesus says this, I just picture blank stares from the Pharisees. They're like, uh, what? And so to ease the tension, uh, Jesus gives us two word pictures. Go with me to verse 21. This is, so, this is such a Jesus-y move. Confusion happens, and then he tells another you know, kind of funny parable-ish, two word pictures that are also confusing. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, If he does, the patch tears away from from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And uh, so are the skins. But the new wine, the new wine is for fresh wineskins. See, uh, both of these pictures are are trying to help us see that, that God is up to something new in Jesus. That's why he says the new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is an invitation to the Pharisees in this story, and and I think to the Pharisees in our hearts, to put away our tradition and to trust God enough to go on an adventure with him. And I know this is easy for me to say, like I'm a seven on the Enneagram, I love an adventure, you give me three options, I want all of them, let's do it. But for some of us, we've seen God move in specific ways, and we've seen God be faithful in specific seasons. And so we think, if I can just get back to that. If they would just, there's this one worship song, if Dan would just play that stinking worship song, I would finally, yes, like the heavens would break open, joy would spill out in my heart. Dan, come on, like play the song already. Send him five emails. So there's these, these routes that we've gone for so long and we think, man, if I just keep going this route, God is sure to be, He's sure to show up in this way. And Jesus is saying, no, there's a new thing happening. There's a new thing that's breaking out. And and isn't it interesting, though, like how easily that we can say that our way is the right way? Even to the point that when a new thing is happening, we look at it with suspicion 
Maybe even in our worst moments, we look at it with some disdain. I want us to be a church that honors what was, does not dishonor it, honors what was, learns from it, asks the people who experienced God's blessing in those moments and says, do you think he's up to something new? And then feverishly, fervently starts praying for God to move in a new way. God is, he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He does not change. And yet, I think that, that God is interested in stirring our hearts, affections for Jesus in such a way that it spills out into Des Moines and actually brings renewal. I want us to be a church marked by that. And perhaps you're thinking, well, Kyle, like, I, I don't look at people with disdain. I don't do that. But we do. We do. I do this. See, we try to make Jesus fit into our paradigm and then abide by our preferences. So we try to make Jesus into a conservative Christian. And so we say, well, this is, and then we pick our passages and we do this. Or on the other side, we say, well, no, Jesus was progressive. And then we have Jesus battle for our social justice issues and we pick our passages. And yet Jesus refused to be bound by either of our paradigms, any of these paradigms. He says, no, 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 new wine is for fresh wineskins. And here, here's what I mean. This, uh, this guy, Tim Chester, in, in the book he wrote, it's called A Meal with Jesus. It's a great short little read. But he helps us to get our mind around what's going on here. And then he notices this thing that in the New Testament, specifically in the Gospels, that this statement, the Son of Man came, it's finished in three different ways. And the first way is in, in Mark 10, and it says this, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The second one in Luke, this is the son of man came to seek and save the lost. And this is, this is my favorite. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a drunkard, excuse me, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. See, the first two are, are about what Jesus is up to. It's his purpose. He, he's, he's serving and he's saving. But the last one, this eating and drinking, it's about how he's serving and saying. So we could say it this way, Jesus serves and he saves by eating and drinking. Come on, is this not a Jesus you wanna roll with? Like this is a Jesus that you wanna follow because Jesus, he serves and he saves by eating and drinking he's, because he's pointing to something bigger than himself. He's pointing to the reality that the kingdom of God is breaking in through him and that it comes near through a meal. And so often we think, no, Jesus, it, no, it can't be that simple. It's gotta be signs, it's gotta be wonders, it's gotta be the miraculous. And I'm saying yes and amen to that. If you, if you get to know me, you wanna, like, you wanna know what I really think about that and what I'm praying for for this church, oh, it's weird. Like, I want the stuff. I want the Jesus stuff here. But you see, the gifts are given by the Spirit according to grace for building up the body, which means that we won't all get the same gifts. And that's okay. Paul will also talk about the, the body of Christ because you got a hand, you got a foot. The, the hand can't say to the foot, hey, I have no need of you. No, no. So it's, it's different gifts for different people, different parts for different functions, and yet Everyone can share a meal. We can all do that. That's the invitation. We can all do it. 
And so I love this. If you're serious about following Jesus, then you need to be serious about eating and drinking. I think Des Moines is ready for this. <laughs> and so here are these like three closing thoughts as we kind of land the plane here. The first is that meals are a celebration of grace. And that word grace, when you come across it in the New Testament, you may have met a, a gal named Charis at some time. Well, she's named grace. That's the Greek word for grace. And it also is translated as gift. So meals are a celebration of the gift of God. This is why at a meal we say grace. And let me just be clear here. This is a, like a little peccadillo, um, but we don't bless the food. Food's already been blessed. God's the generous gift giver. He's the one who's given out of his bounty, out of his generating like source. He is the one who's given. And so we give praise to God because he's the one who's blessed us. Prayer in that moment is then a chance to acknowledge that God in his fullness has given to us to be filled. It's, it's, it's a moment for us to slow down long enough to like recognize. Are any of you busy? Have any, let me just ask this question. Have any of you uh, seen a person that you haven't seen in maybe a week and you said, how was your week? Oh, I was busy. Any of you say that recently? Busy, but good. That's a lie. Busy is not good. Busy is chock full of anxiety. Busy is like has no margin. Busy is stressed. Busy is not the way of Jesus. And so a meal helps us to slow down, to recognize that God is the giver of all good things. And in that moment, we're saying, thank you. We're saying thank you. And everybody can do this. You know, there's this uh, passage in Revelation and, and I just want us to look at this very last line. I think there's, I think there's two slides, so go to, the, go to the second one. It says this. It says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. See, this gift, it doesn't just happen right here and right now. This gift is actually, check this, not in my notes. Um, did you know like, that the end of all things is a feast? What if your colleague said, hey, what'd you, what'd you do at church this weekend? Or rather, what'd you do this week? And you said, I feasted. <laughs> really? Is there a new restaurant open? Yes, it's the table of the lamb. <laughs> well, that sounds kind of edgy. Uh, where's that at? Is that like, where is, is I don't know where that is. I meet at Central Campus on Sundays. <laughs> Once a quarter, it's our simple feast. No, uh, but, but this, see, meals tell a story. There's signs of grace that point to the renewal of all things. So the meal isn't the end in itself. A meal is a sign pointing forward. Because from the beginning of all things, God talks about sharing in his presence with us. He shares a meal. See, meals are about opening up our life to God and to one another. So wherever you at, you can share a meal. You can open up your table. You're saying, well, Kyle, I have... Like my, you should see my line item for my restaurant budget. Like it's very, very small. That's okay. Get some ramen, get some sparkling Martinelli's and go buck wild. Like that is budget savvy. That is celebrating the gift of God. Second thought, meals are the seedbed of community. See, doesn't, something happens when we share a meal with someone. Something happens when you share a tea with someone. It, it, and think about all the high occasions. We're, we're hardwired for this. Birthdays, you eat. 
Graduations, you eat. Retirements, you eat. Maybe it's not a high occasion. Maybe it's a, a somber occasion. It's a funeral. What do you do? You eat. It's because somehow when we celebrate life, we come and we say, well, we gotta eat. And our heritage as a community following Jesus is just saturated. It is drenched in this. In the book of Acts, we actually read this moment that when the spirit of God breaks out in and amidst these followers of Jesus, this emerging Jesus movement, check this out. This is what we read. This is Acts 2, 46. It says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I think a sign that God's spirit is set loose in a community is that they eat together. That's the miraculous amidst the mundane. How could God be at the table? Because that's where it's ending. You think if following Jesus is just about getting out of your suffering, you're in the wrong place. Jesus is here to join you in your suffering, to say that he loves you so much to suffer with you, even to the point of death, death on a cross, because he sees you fully in your suffering. And he says that the tears, they will be wiped away, that the suffering will end. But right now, we count suffering as joy because joy, it comes in the morning and it is coming. And so I want you to have people here with you to celebrate this in. Because Jesus' table, it's no longer a contested space. It's, it's, it's a space of reconciliation. It's, it's a space that is like fertile soil for God to grow his church. Just look again at verse 47. It says this, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I don't think it's any accident that there was glad and generous hearts receiving their food and that God was adding to their number. What if our vision for the church in Des Moines? What if our vision for God breaking out was that every time that you stepped away with your colleague for lunch, you, you grabbed a whole bunch of them, you just went down to the calf, wherever you go, I don't, I don't know. And for you, you're like, Jesus, let me display your grace. Sew together something richer. You listen to their stories. You, see, like you actually see them. How beautiful that would be. Last thought here. Meals are an invitation to Jesus and his kingdom. So there's this gal uh, who wrote a book back in 2018. Her name's Rosaria Butterfield, and the book's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. It's like something like sharing radical, ordinary hospitality or something like that. And she has a fascinating story. She's a lit professor, um, like radical feminist. She would identify as gay, and um, she writes the scathing article in a newspaper. And and it's kind of slamming Christians. And so she then receives a response from a local minister. And this minister essentially invites her over for a meal. He and his wife. And she shows up. And she thinks it's going to be this like intense battle. But as she recalls it, it was one of the most beautiful scenes she's experienced. She ended up going back week after week after week. Rosaria Butterfield is writing a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Any guess what happened to Rosario Butterfield? Imagine that the Spirit of God through the Word of God softened her heart to see that the way of Jesus is the most beautiful way in the world. And it was a table. The table was the invitation into this. And so Gateway, here's the mission. Set a table. 
So I'm thinking, Kyle, I didn't win the Myers-Briggs lottery. That, that's not me. I'm introverted. I work with people all day. The last thing that I want to do when I get home is set a table and dine with others. I hear that. I'm married to an introvert. God is bigger than your need for energy, bigger than your introversion. God is bigger than that. He is faithful to fill you up. You say, well, Kyle, my table is my refuge. It's the only time I get to spend with my family. So if, if that's the case, I just want to present these words to you. It, it's not my responsibility to convince you. It's the Spirit of God's going to do what he's going to do. So just listen to these words. This is a, a, a pastor down in uh, Australia. He says this. This is Simon Carey Holt. He was also a chef, so food. Uh, it's good to be reminded that the table is a very ordinary place, a place so routine and every day it is easily overlooked as a place of ministry. Yet it is the very ordinariness of the table and the ministry we exercise there that renders these elements of Christian life so important to the mission of the church. Setting a table, cooking a meal, washing the dishes is the ministry of facilitation. It's providing a context in which people feel loved and welcome and where God's spirit can be at work in their lives. So if you've trusted that Jesus is who he claims to be, let me tell you what's true of you. That God has poured his love abroad into your hearts through the power of the spirit. That means that you, not your home, not your table, but you, the Apostle Paul would say, is a temple. You are a temple of the living God. If you have given your allegiance to Jesus, you've, if you've trusted that he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, then you are a place where the Spirit of God dwells, which means that God is interested in you being present with others because you are not the end of the Spirit of God because God is interested in partnering with you to see renewal just as it's been breaking out in your life, break out in the lives of others. And the table is the place where the miraculous needs to be displayed. See, to follow Jesus is to keep in step with Jesus and our Jesus ate with sinners. It's just what he did. It's what he was known for. So, so if you love Jesus, and you want to try and love people, and you're someone who eats, the mission of God is for you. See, when we join God in the renewal of all things, we do so one meal at a time. I think this is something we can get a hold of. You know, this is, this is something that like tempted me to be a Calvinist. Uh, we didn't plan to have a simple feast today on the day that this passage would come up. And yet, isn't it interesting that in the providence of God, we're going to come to this table. So if you're, if you're serving communion, if, you would, if you'd come forward to do so, um, you know, we're, we're going to come and we're actually going to receive the bread and the cup. There, there was a moment in Jesus' life and ministry when he had, the Bible says he says, he set his face toward Jerusalem. And that's just Bible talk for it meant Jesus was going to go to the cross. He was going to go to the place where um, where Jesus would confront sin, where he would confront death. And just before that, wouldn't you know it, Jesus shared a meal with the people closest to him. And at this meal, this meal that was already like just saturated in significance, it's this Passover meal that's celebrating like God passing over the people of Israel, preserving them through the blood of the lamb. 
And in this meal already saturated with meeting, Jesus, he takes the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. Take of this in remembrance of me. And then later on in the meal, he, he takes the cup and he says, this is my blood poured out for you. This is, this is the, the blood of the new covenant. And so here at Gateway, we, we come to the table weekly. We, we come here and we remember through this symbol that God is the one who followed through on his word, that he's faithful to save us to the uttermost, that he actually gave himself over to death. And so when we take the bread and the cup, we are saying with our bodies, yes and amen to the death of Jesus, because we know that Jesus, when he faced death, death did not overcome him. But Jesus put death to death and rose in the power of God. And so, yes, we're saying that I am dead with Jesus and I am alive together with Christ and I am sealed. I'm sealed. This has been another episode of the Gateway Church Podcast. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.